Hello, and welcome to the beginning of Season 2 of SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And what we are doing for our second season, we're, we're going to split it into two parts due to various schedules and travel commitments and other contractual arrangements. Um, <laughs> for those who want to sort of follow along at home, we're going to start with part one that's going to air mostly in February and March. Today we're going to be talking about Children of God by Mary Doria Russell. This is the sequel to The Sparrow that we raved about so much in season one. Next we'll be talking about the, the new collection um, Jagannath by Karen Tidbeck. Mm-hmm. After that, my contribution is Star Maker by Olaf Stapledon. And then Karen has suggested Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. Then we're going to take a a bit of a break, and in June and July, we'll pop back up with my suggestion is Shadow of the Torturer by Jane Wolfe. Karen has suggested Napier's Bones by Daryl Murphy. I will be suggesting a selection of Cordwainer Smith's short stories. And then we'll be considering um, a handful of shorter pieces, Flatland by Edwin Abbott, Distances by Vandana Singh, and Single Bit Error by Ken Liu. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you want to know the rhyme and reason to our choices, uh, for this first half, I am bringing to the table myth, that's the Jagana and the Till We Have Faces. And for the second part, we I'm going to be bringing what I call math fine. So Napier's Bones, Flatland, um, the, oops, the single bit error and distances. Mm-hmm. And distances are all mathematically related. And we're going to have a look at that as a, we could say, perhaps a subgenre of SF. And from my point of view, uh, originally in season one, Karen had asked me to provide some of the more contemporary, you know, so basically I was looking at things that really impressed me from the last um, 10 to 15 years of science fiction aiming towards hard SF. Now what I'm bringing is a little bit more of the history of the field, some things that have impressed me from my historical reading of the field. So uh, Star Maker is from the 1930s. Um, Cordwainer Smith wrote his best work in the 1950s, and Shadow of the Torture is from the 80s. So hopefully we'll, um, you know, we'll, we'll tie this all together and it will make some sort of sense. Mm-hmm. And having said all that, the outlier to all of this, of course, is Children of God. Right. But that is our connection to the previous season. We did have um, quite a few questions at the end of the sparrow, and we were assured that there were quite a few answers in the sequel. So, of course, we had to, had to, had to pick it up, have and a the, read, the, and I tell you all about the, it. The other reason Children of God is an outlier is, if I'm not mistaken, this is the only book we've picked so far um, that neither of us had read in advance of picking it. This is a good point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we both said, yeah, oh, yeah. it's a sequel to The Sparrow. We must read it. That was <laughs> that was our entire yes. rationalization for this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and I think that it paid off. I do think that it paid off. So, uh, but I will... Well, how, how, are we, how are we going to segue into this? I think we're, we're kind of already segueing, so why don't, why don't, you, why don't you lead off? Uh, Children of God by Mary Doria Russell. What do you think? Well, I'll, we'll start with a, a brief summary. Oh, wait. That we'll try. Before, before we get all the way into summary, let me reiterate for anybody who is joining us, any new listeners we may have picked up in season two, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert Absolutely. for the whole season. 
Absolutely. We talk about so, books all the way to the end. If you don't want things to be spoiled, then read things first before, you know, go and read things and then pick us up later. And that's the, that's the beauty of a podcast. Remember that. If you see we're discussing something, you know, it looks interesting, go away, read it first, then listen to the podcast. You'll yeah, get full the, enjoyment. The, the pause button is a wonderful thing. <laughs> we will be yeah. shameless in giving away endings. Yes. <laughs> well, in a way, hmm. In a way, you should be doing a summary because this is part of your slate. Oh, oh my goodness, you're right. <laughs> I was kind of hoping to get your feelings first because my feelings on the book have turned out to be negative. Oh, okay. Well, but if it's just a summary, that's, oh, that's true. In the, okay, so let's let's go with the summary. Um, the structure of Children of God is more linear, I would say, than, um, than the structure of The Sparrow was. The Sparrow was very much interweaved chapters where there was sort of a past and sort of a present. Um, in Children of God, we follow, there, there are a few more dipping in and out, but it's not quite as, um, you know, it, the structure isn't perhaps as neat as, as The Sparrow was. Um, so Emilio... Um, Sendaz is this, you know, we, we were given to believe he was the sole survivor of the tragedy from the Sparrow. Uh, he be, kind of begins the healing process, you know, after the being forced to the revelations that he was in the Sparrow. Um, he begins healing and he sets up some relationships on Earth that, um, that help him through that process. He decides to leave the Jesuits. He actually gets a fiance. He, he wants to you know, mm-hmm. weave it all and, behind him. And very, and very importantly as well, his, his fiance has a child, has a small daughter. Right, And, right. and there's it's quite a close connection between them as well, which helps him to heal from the um, accidental death that he caused of the child on the uh, planet that he visited. Right, right. Um, and so, so things seem to be going kind of swimmingly on that front. And then... Um, if you recall from the Sparrow, the father general of the Jesuits was from a mafia family. I know that's, I mean, that's, they have a different word for it. Uh, Camorra. It's a Camorra, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but from that kind of crime family. And um, in this book, the father general of the Jesuits and the Pope strike a deal to put the Jesuits back in good graces with the Vatican. And they actually kidnap Emilio and throw him back on an asteroid and send him back to the planet. And I shouldn't be laughing, should I? But I am laughing. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's almost, it it does almost feel absurd. Um, But, 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 but the cool thing about it is it, it feels a bit like a MacGuffin as much as the asteroid, you know, ship going between, um, between solar systems feels a bit like a MacGuffin just to get him there. But at the same time, the bit that has me chuckling is this very neat little scenario where initially he's, he's helping them. He's training priests in translation for the languages that they'll encounter on the new planet. And they're kind of hinting to him that because he's been a priest for so long and if, even when he leaves them, he still owes them. He owes them for you know, the various things they've done to educate him and give him opportunities and medical treatment after his trials and tribulations and so forth. So what happens is that at some point when he finally opens his mail, he realizes that Anne, who of course died on the planet, Anne and George left him quite a sizable amount of money. 
So he writes this this huge check <laughs> to to the, the secretary general, sort of like, yeah, you know. Yeah, I, I and here's what I owe was a, you. Bye. Yes, here, here's the middle finger. Bye. <laughs> and, and, and that sort of like wipes off his debt. So it's, it's, it's almost that the, the kidnapping reeks of desperation because that's precisely what it is. They thought they had him. And then he just came into this money suddenly like, yeah, I'm done with you. And they're kind of like, okay, what do we do now? We'll kidnap him. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it seems extremely radical. And it seems extremely radical, especially from the point of view of anybody who's thinking, well, reasonably, you should say. But the Pope isn't entirely reasonable by normal standards, is he? Well, I, I did like the, the point where the Pope had met Emilio in Africa when Emilio was a priest and the Pope was a much younger man. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that there was that connection, that spiritual connection. And, of course, you know, this was enabled by... by and I, have to, I do have to say, Mary Doria Russell does a phenomenal job of playing with the, um, the time dilation and relativistic effects. Yes, yes, yes. I've, I've got absolutely no criticism of her there. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, yeah, the, the Pope d- definitely feels, and so does the Father General, that, um, that Emilio's work on Ricard is, is not yet done. But you say that he feels that, but it's, it's, it's a little stronger than that. It's a little stronger than that. And that's where, that's where it gets a little bit, well, when I say unreasonable, I mean not according to reason. I don't mean... I mean it in a value-neutral sense. They refer to the Pope as being a prophet. Right, right. So yeah, he's very spiritually moved that, on the topic. He's, yes, and his, his feeling that there's unfinished business for Emilio is not merely mercenary, is not merely image-related. It's actually a very deep, profound conviction, you could say provided by God, provided by the Holy Spirit, that Emilio must go there to, you could almost say, complete that spiritual formation that began. Right, so or, it's, or it's, find redemption. When you say find redemption... Find, redemption. Meaning, find meaning in what had happened to him, as opposed to simply right, okay. trying to put it behind him. Okay, okay, because redemption suggests that you, you've fallen and you're oh, trying yeah, to find a way no, back. sorry, good point. Oh. Good point. Okay. <laughs> yes. Well, yes, exactly. To find, to find meaning, but to find meaning, although you can argue that that's exactly what did happen, and there's a, a later part yeah, of the Yeah, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Get to Sorry. You continue. We're, I'm doing it already. I'm starting to, to pick it apart in mid-summary. <laughs> Why don't you continue? Okay, so, so let's, let's leave Emilio on his asteroid being kidnapped by the Camorra and some, some hefty, very hefty Jesuit gentlemen and, um, and move back to Rakat because, and here's, here's one of the places where my suspension of disbelief just really hit a huge, huge blow. The you know, so you've got you're following Emilio on Earth and then on the asteroid, and and you get chapters from back on Rakat, and huge changes are happening there. Um, yes, the rebellion of of the um, the Runa against the how do you pronounce that? Janata. Janata. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the prey species against the predator species is proceeding, and it proceeds relatively quickly. But one of the things that we find out is that 
Although at the end of The Sparrow, you were given to believe that Emilio is the sole survivor of the original expedition, it turns out that Sophia and her unborn child survived the, er, the massacre. Yes. And I personally found this to be such a huge bait and switch with comic book logic Aww. that I found it very, very hard to forgive. Oh. I really, really hate that. Oh, you think everyone's dead? No, they're not. Okay. I, I guess I can see where you're coming from. It, it certainly didn't hit me that way. I could see uh, a certain narrative sense in having Sophia alive precisely because when they come together in the end, there's that huge difference of, of history and perspective where you get to have that clash and if you had not had Sophia around, it, you, you, you wouldn't have had that possibility. No, I do understand that to tell the story she wanted to tell in The Children of God, she needed Sophia there. But it felt yes. like such a betray, uh, betrayal's too strong a word. Um, but no, it, it, it felt, felt like, like people clips. to pop up from being dead when they were supposed to be dead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I felt like it undercut to some extent. I mean, a minor extent, but it did undercut the tragedy of the origin of the the first story. I thought it heightened it because she was by herself. Yeah, yeah, and then well, okay. So let's let's continue with the summary. So Sophia's there, and she's hiding out with some rebel um, Runa, and. Um, she has she has her baby. Um, she has uh, her baby premature, um, and he turns out to be autistic. And yes. um, I do think that Russell does a, a phenomenal job of portraying real autism. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, one of the genita, um, one of the actually the predator guy who had been their main liaison for the original expedition. He moves up socially um, yes. as, as a result of his dealings with Emilio, but then he has, right. he has a daughter who's crippled. Not severely, but the Janata have um, very strict standards about this sort of thing. And he actually um, throws, throws away all his newfound social standing and takes his daughter and flees and actually kind of joins up with the, with the Runa. One moment, one moment. Um, and I will pause for a second. That is not how I read it. He thinks he's moving up socially. They promised him certain things if he would do certain things. Mm -hmm. They told him his daughter was crippled. He believed it. He believed he would have to then kill her. But then something told him to go and look. And he realized that, that there wasn't really any deformity. So okay. it was actually a trick. Okay. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And and that, I think, was what really brought home to him that they were never going to accept him. Mm-hmm. That it was it was really just all calculated to to continue to humiliate him and embarrass him as somebody who was outside of that circle. Right, right. So he um he joins up with he finds Sophia and and where she is. And um, he goes with some of the more um, military-minded Runa to mm-hmm. help with the, the essentially planet-wide rebellion, as far as I can tell, at least continent-wide rebellion. Um, and his daughter, whom he names after Anne Edwards, he names yes. her 
Anwa, which is the closest he can get to that name. Um, she's raised with by Sophia and the Runa with um, Sophia's son. Who's Isaac. Isaac, yes. Um, obviously very biblical stuff <laughs> going on there. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so then things get really complicated with the different bands of Runa and Janata and what each are doing and there's politics. They do get very complicated. Yeah. And that was a struggle for me. That was a struggle for me. I, I definitely appreciated it because it, it drew out a lot of the complexity of the situation, which would be insanely complex. So I, that part mm-hmm. I didn't mind so much. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end... Okay, so at the end, Emilio and his priests come in, and Sophia at this point is is very old. You know, she's in her seventies, I, I believe, and you know her son's yes. grown and, and has moved off to do his own thing. And um, at that point, the Runa are completely dominant on the continent, right? Yes. Um, yes. There are a few bands of Janata left. Some of them are bitter enders who are just trying to, you know, somehow either they're still trying, they're still out there raiding and killing Runa. There's Mm -hmm. also a band led by Hanala who are trying to form a new synthesis, a a way that Janata and Runa can live together without the Janata consuming Runa meat. Yes. Live in respect. Sophia is with the main, sort of kind of the capital city, I read it, you know, with the Runa. And she believes basically that all the Janatar who are left are bad. Yes, that they need to be wiped out. That they need to be wiped out and, because of the raids. And, she's, and... She's, she's very much framing it as she did from the end of the Sparrow, where she sees it as, you know, she is, well, the Janata to her are basically like Nazis. Right. And she does not see any any space for peaceful coexistence. Absolutely. Yeah. So Emilio comes into this situation with his Camorra and, and Jesuit um, comrades. And he is contacted by the peaceful band, you know, the peaceful outlier band. And mm-hmm. so he, he decides to make a, a stab at at understanding what's going on, which immediately puts him and Sophia at odds. Yes. Which, and, and partly it felt partly because of poor communication. Yes. Honestly. Yes. And that I, I, I thought that was kind of a shame. Um, although again, I can, I can understand it. Um, and, and, and what, what kind of brought that home is that when you were talking about the time dilation effect, you really felt it there. Because Sophia's in her 70s. She's had, you know, decades of fighting. And Emilio has just done another light, light speed trip and, and has not actually had that much time to pass for him. Yes, he's had to do his own healing from what happened to him, but he has not been aware of the larger scale effects, the larger scale social upheaval that's been going on. So he comes to it, you could say, in a very fresh, and she's she's been... She's been dealing with this for years upon years upon years. And they they just, as you say, there's just this miscommunication going on. 
but it to me to me that was was quite a striking scene. Yeah, no, it really was. Oh, let me go back a moment. There was a scene um, when Sophia was younger, right after Isaac was born. She learns about the second expedition, the one that found Emilio. Yes. And she decides to make a try for their lander yes, to get yes. back to their asteroid and to get back home. Mm-hmm. And and she she waits to see if she can find any of the remaining humans. And when she can't, she make she goes for it. And she finds mm-hmm. the landers just then been destroyed, like within the yes. past week. Yes. <laughs> and that just felt like twisting the knife. It was it was well done, but you know it was sort of funny because at that stage I was I, I was really feeling that I did not want them to pass each other midway. Right. That would have right. felt more like a knife twist to me. Yeah, that would have been. That um, would have been. <laughs> and and but but here again, I feel like. I feel like the sparrow wrapped up, and then Russell, and then the author got the idea for the shape of the story of the children of God, and she had to, she had to take care of all the things in the sparrow that would have sensibly prevented the shape of the story of <laughs> children of God from coming together. So you mean the destruction of the land at the last minute? Was yeah, that was just. Oh, really? What I. When I read that, and you're going to have to correct me if I'm wrong, because that was a bit I might have been reading too quickly, I got the impression that was related to what Isaac did when they were trying to be sneaky, and Isaac has this aversion. At a certain stage, he had an aversion to red. And the light of the evening is red because of the, of the, the, the two suns. The, the second sun is, is that kind of light. Am I remembering this correctly? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they think they're sneaking, you know, they've already you know, put on camouflage smell and they're, they're trying to get to their destination. And he, and he steps out and it's red and he starts screaming. Right. So I, I almost got the impression that from that, um, the, they were alerted, went looking, saw the lander, destroyed it. Okay. So I'm I, not, thought, I thought they were related well, it definitely having not being able to travel with Isaac in the in the red sunlight um, definitely slowed them down. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if his freak out was directly related to people being alerted to the or the Runa being alerted to the presence of the lander, or okay. not the Runa. Okay. Sorry, the the other ones, the, the predators, the Janata. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm a little fuzzy on that. But either way, you're right. It was it was related to Isaac's disability. Either it slowed them slowed them down, or it it alerted the um, the bad guys. Yes, but be to be perfectly honest, I thought there was quite a lot of that kind of thing going on in the Sparrow as well. Yeah, there was. Like, remember, remember the one that got you so angry, where she forgot and, and used up too much of the fuel in the lander. Yeah, yeah. Well. Okay, so so here's the here's the thing. So in my review, my initial review of the Sparrow, I I said that you know I read it with my critic brain fully engaged, and there were a whole lot of times where I was just like, oh, okay, really, you know, the magical <laughs> accelerating asteroid and the the coincidences and this that and the other, and I was like, yeah, you know, I see what you did there. You know, you can see the hand of the author. But I said in that review, the. The ending was so beautiful and so poignant and so true that it was mm-hmm. worth all of it. All of it was right. forgivable. Right. Forgive me, but the ending of Children of God didn't do it. Did not give me enough with which to forgive everything else this time. Tell them the ending. Tell them the ending. Okay, so so you have the the Runa, but 
and here's one of the things. See, what's happened for the Runa is a wonderful thing, right? They're no longer being butchered mm-hmm. for meat, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're able to form their own, you know, they, they're the rightful inheritors of this planet, essentially. And that, that's awesome. Yes. But halfway through, or maybe even two-thirds of the way through, our sympathies shift mm-hmm. from what the Runa have been able to achieve through their campaign to the Janata, Janata who are trying to live the utopian life. And now we start... Or at least... This... So I, will, I wasn't going to quite call it utopian, but, but at least uh, because they, 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 do struggle, they do struggle to find other prey or other meat that's not the Runao because they've been so accustomed to that particular social setup. Right, but, and Hanala yeah, really trying... does... Hanala really does suffer. I mean, she has that's... one child successfully... But her next two are mis- either miscarried or stillborn because... And it's because of malnutrition. Because of her malnutrition. And then um, her last one, she dies in childbirth and Emilio delivers by C-section. Yes. Um, you know, so, so it is a struggle. You're right. Absolutely. And that's the thing, though, is, is in switching our sympathies so late in the book, you don't get to kind of bask in what the runa have accomplished <laughs> but this this is okay I, I can can see your point and I suppose that one of the good things about doing that is that it stops it from being the usual trope the usual triumphal trope that you do get in SF no you're absolutely right and and okay okay so let me let me finish this particular thought because okay I get that you don't mm-hmm. want to have the Runa triumph be unambiguous because it has come at the price of a lot of suffering. And one thing I loved about Children of God is that you learn so much more about the the cultures and the music and the art yes. of the people. Especially Isaac mm-hmm. is obsessed with music. That's one of his autistic things, right? Is that's And that's one of the reasons he leaves his mother because the Runa, they don't have music and their constant chatter drives them insane. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's I can totally see that. Um and and by getting more insight also by the way into Emilio's main rapist. Yes. Um the the guy who who tortured Emilio so much without necessarily that wasn't what he thought necessarily that he was doing. He comes into political power and he's the one who has to kind of fight off the Runa, but he'd had his own vision for where society could go and it wasn't necessarily a bad vision. And you learn a lot more about the the Janata, so I appreciated very much the fact that well, I appreciated that insight, and then I can understand how at the end of the book you have to. Sh- you she wanted to show that the Runa's triumph was not without cost of this culture. Okay, I get that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that was maybe part of what I was saying, but I don't want to sound like I'm emphasizing that too much. But but well, your, no, your me, point is well taken. So. Well, no, but there's one more bit, and the mm-hmm. bit is where Isaac finally turns to Emilio and tells him what he's discovered in terms of one of one of Isaac's things, again, when he's got Sophia's, one of Sophia's old computer tablets, and he's played around with that his whole life. And again, he has this obsession with music and, of course, the focus that some autistic people are able to bring to a, a problem. 
So he has translated the DNA of the runa, the janata, and humans into music and found harmonies between them. Yes. And, he, and it's basically a new kind of notation in a way, a new kind of, of it's, a, it's a new kind of uh, an analytical tool. Right, right. And he turns to Emilio and says, I'm the only one who could have found this. Um, yes. And, and, and that was lame. <laughs> So that, you, you agree that was the final point? That seemed to be the final point. That's what the narrative ended up driving okay. I, to. No, and I, then... I, I, I feel so too. Um, but, but Emilio seemed satisfied. Well, and then, they, yeah, and then Emilio turns around and goes home, and it turns out his fiance had died only, what, a year earlier? And, he, and he, yeah. he does manage to meet his daughter that he had with his fiance, and that, that part was cool. There, I did love the final scene with him and his daughter. Yes, I absolutely did love that. That that gave me some small spiritual balm. But yeah, <laughs> Emilio seemed to think that that was. He's like, well, okay, if if that's what it was all about, then maybe that's what it was all about, and maybe that's enough. And I'm like, no, no, it wasn't. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad we got to this point because now I can refer to something I was thinking about earlier when I said, let me hold my tongue for a bit. Mm-hmm. Emilio, there's this beautiful scene. This was while they were actually in transit. Emilio is talking about his childhood again. And of course, in the sparrow, we understand that he had a very hard childhood because basically his mother had been unfaithful when his father was, when his, his non-biological father, let's say, um, was away, when her husband was away. When he was in prison, might I add. (laughs) Yes. And um, he had, you know, some, some, someone had come along as it were, and Emilio was born. And this, her husband knew that this was not his son. But Emilio, for a long time, growing up, a small child, just cannot understand why he's hated. He can't understand why the, there is this animosity towards him alone and, and why he doesn't look like the other siblings and so forth. And finally, what was it, age 11 or age 10 or something like yeah, that? Yeah, right there. They, um, you know, it, it finally becomes clear to him, oh, wait a minute, you know, I know when he's calling me a bastard, it's, it's not just a metaphor. <laughs> it's not just an insult, it's, it's the truth. This is, this is why. And he says, you know, in that moment, he, was, he, he felt a certain level of peace because it made sense. It, it was not that the, the suffering was, was suddenly, you know, everything was suddenly rosy and, and everything was perfect. But because there was a, a reason behind it, it, it became bearable. And... What I found very interesting about Emilio and Isaac's little encounter at the end where, where Isaac says, you know, here is this thing, is that at the end of the sparrow, I was speculating with you and I said things like, well, maybe what if the whole reason that they came to that planet was to uh, change the social order so that the Runal would no longer be oppressed? Mm-hmm. Would that be worth it? That was my speculation. Right. I find this ending to actually be more elegant really? because it has nothing to do with individual suffering. It has nothing to do with collective suffering. It actually has to do solely with uncovering truth and knowledge. Okay. But, um, I have long maintained and I, I have complained about this in other, um, science fiction books in science fiction, there's no such thing as the one person who's the only person who can find something. Mm-hmm. There's always, in, in science, 
there's always somebody else who's going to figure it out. I remember, um, did you ever see or read Christopher Priest's, uh, they made it actually a pretty fun movie out of it. It was called uh, The Prestige. I'd heard about it, but I hadn't read it or seen it. I've read it and seen it, and and I enjoyed both. But one of the conceits is basically Nikola Tesla invented something that no one else could ever replicate. Ever. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe it. No such thing. (laughs) Absolutely not. That's not the way science works. Once, Once knowledge or technology is out there discoverable, it will be discovered. Mm-hmm. It, it, mm-hmm. Maybe a genius can can jump jump the gun by even a century, even even a bunch of centuries. But mm-hmm. um, but somebody will eventually, if it's if it's able to be done or able to be known, somebody will eventually mm-hmm. come or come down the pike and figure it out. Well, I agree with you, but I didn't take Isaac's statement as accurate. Right. Okay. I, I mean, he, he's one who said, I'm the only one who could have done this. Right. And he, he, said, he said stuff like that all the time. Yeah, no, good point, good point. Yeah, Isaac was not a, a neutral arbiter of his own um, <laughs> ability or his own, his own reality mm. in a way. <laughs> um, yeah. But for Emilio to, to kind of take that on board and go, well, okay, if that, if that was it, maybe that was worth it. I just, I don't know. I just couldn't. Well, you see, what did they come there? What was their reason for, co- for coming there? They discovered a music that they'd never heard before. The f- correct in the first expedition. In the, the the yes, from the first. from the beginning of the spiral. Yes, they yes. they heard this music and they were like, "What is this music? This music is clearly an indication of intelligent life. We must go to this place." Right, but they wanted to know their souls, not the music. I mean, the music was well. Part of it. I understand. And now and the music suggests- if you think about it, at the end of Children of God, that music that they heard in the Sparrow has been eradicated. Yes, yes, hang on. Stay with me, stay with me. Oh, sorry, the Jesuits sorry. were the ones who said they wanted to know their souls. The scientists, who were still still quite a large amount of mission, were more looking at their intelligence, and that's what a lot of their research was about when they were there. And one can argue that the whole question of what is his soul and what is intelligence is all intermingled, but I'm not going to go down that road. Yeah, fair, fair, fair. What I mean is that in, in terms of what you might almost call narrative elegance, the idea that they're interested in the music and they're interested in their souls in the beginning of the sparrow, and then at the end of Children of God, it's about music and DNA. I did find that elegant because it was a whole question of can we consider um, the Janata and the Runao to be uh, like humans, are they all children of God? Are they? Do they? Do they have these souls like we do? And then he finds harmonies in the DNA, which is pretty much as close to tangible soul as as maybe a scientist might be able to get. I think it's just the fact that that they were communicate. That have I broken you? No, no. <laughs> um, I think just the fact, though, that that they, the humans, were able to communicate with both the species of Rakat, that that kind of, to me, and again, I know I don't have a canonical perspective on this sort of thing, but to me, that, that already proves that they have souls, or at least souls in the way that we understand them. Um, and, and I can imagine some future where nothing, none of this stuff, happens or maybe the the prey predator rebellion happens but isaac isn't part of it and and they don't find this uh musical connection at the end of children of god and you know 500 years 
after the events of Children of God, some scientist who's also a musician has been toying around with something in his lab, and he goes, oh, hey, you know what I just found? <laughs> so basically you want the same result with less suffering. Is that it? Um, I don't think that that result, if that is it, was mm. worth the suffering of both the books. But, but hang on. I'm not sure if I want to use the word worth the suffering because Emilio's example from his childhood, finding out why his father, why his, his, his mother's husband hated him. Mm -hmm. I don't think he would have said that was good reason or that justified it. It was just that it made sense. So if you want to talk about if it was worth it, you know, he would not have said, oh, you know, well, you know, now, now, that, now, now I understand why he's been beating me. Of course, this is all worth it. It's, it. It wasn't on that level. It was more on the level of um, let, let there be some sort of, 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 of result. Let there be some kind of, of, of sense or consequence or, or foundation to why this is unfolding the way it's, it's, it's unfolding. Let there not be completely meaningless suffering. In other words, well, but, but the question of worth it doesn't necessarily come into play. Fair, okay, yeah, but you can't get the kind of unambiguous answer out of God that Emilio got out of his mother's husband. But no, he doesn't have to because, well, okay, what I'm saying is... When, you say, when, when Emilio said, you know, back in his youth that that made sense, that was a concrete fact that helped him reinterpret the events of his childhood. And I think I'm explaining myself badly. I'm focusing on... Okay, I'm trying to draw a distinction between something being worth it and something being explicable. And you can see a cause and effect. If you can see a cause and an effect, then it becomes explicable. So Emilio could see that the particular musical discovery that Isaac had made was an effect that had its cause in their initially coming there and going through the various things they went through. Even, even the social upheavals, you could argue, was a part of it. Whether all of that to get to the effect was worth it is not actually something he addresses. Okay, okay. It's just, it's just that he can see that it came out of this. And, and sometimes, sometimes the, the satisfaction of knowing the cause and effect link is entirely independent as to whether either the cause or the effect is a good thing. Okay. I mean, in his childhood, both the cause and the effect were bad things. Right. The cause right. was his mother was unfaithful. The effect was that he got brutalized. Mm -hmm. And there was, there was, you could say there was no happiness there, but he found some kind of, 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 of contentment, if you want to call it that, in at least seeing, ah, see, there's, there's this thing and that thing and there's a link. All right. I'm, I feel good. Uh, at least I can see where this is coming from. So it's, it's more about the link and not necessarily about the value assigned to what started it and what finished, what was at the end. Yeah, and I don't know, I just, I don't think that link was enough for me. Well, here's the cool thing. I'm looking at my notes, because I do make notes, and one of the things that I made a, a remark about, especially when we were talking about the whole mafia kidnapping thing and the Pope with his inspired conviction that Emilio had to go back and there was unfinished business. There's a, a phrase in the book, does the end justify the means? Mm -hmm. 
And it's something that one of the Jesuit priests on the ship with Emilio is struggling with because he is very much in cahoots. And part of the journey, in fact, is about Emilio having, well, I shouldn't say having, coming to give him a level of, of forgiveness for, for what he's done. Right, cause because the Jesuit he, priests involved in the mission kidnapping Emilio, they know they have done wrong. Yes. And they except are hoping for, that it is worth it. There's there's one who wasn't who wasn't part of it. His good friend John. Yeah, John Kendati. Yeah, and he 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 suffered he suffered because when he saw what was happening, he was really not happy at all. But but there was there was one in particular who was very much you know kind of you know elbow deep in all this muck, and it really does become a question of you know you're you're in obedience to a supposedly moral organization that's asking you to carry out. A completely criminal act <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and and on the basis of in a sense a uh, a word of god type thing emilio must get to this planet however it is done does the end justify the means so the i i'm not i'm not going to say this i'm i'm not going to say this as a devil's advocate i just want to make that clear i don't want you to think i'm, I'm putting this down as a, a fait accompli no but no i that i if the pill- if the Pope is prophet, if the Pope is really considered, because Emilio actually was moved by the things that he said, mm-hmm. and the Secretary General, for all of his you know hard nosed pragmatism, to the point where he's making a deal to make sure that the um, the the Church and the Jesuits come back together. <coughs> Pardon me. He still is is completely amazed by the Pope and and convinced on a certain level that he's divinely inspired. Now, when you say, does the end justify the means, can that only be true for the omniscient? And does that mean that this Pope gets a pass because of his gift of prophecy? And I would say no. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. But you see, it's about cause and effect again. It's about cause and effect. And it's kind of interesting because both of the, even, sorry, I'm I'm all over the place. Let me stop and, and whittle my thoughts down to a finer point. We are, you are saying that you can see how the end point with Isaac, how it links up with the initial cause. You can see the link. You just don't think it was worth it. Correct? Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. So in a way, what I'm saying is let's, let's go back to not saying whether it's good or bad yet. But the Pope knows that this must be the end. Emilio must be on the planet. He, he has to go there. Right, and because even the Pope doesn't, doesn't necessarily know why. He doesn't know what Emilio will find. He just knows that he has to go. Yes, well, as, 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 as much as he reveals himself, yes. Pretty much he just knows Emilio has to go. And interestingly enough, the way he phrases it is not even a case of Emilio has to go because there are other things afoot that he has to have a part in. He actually phrases it in terms of this is for Emilio's soul. This is for Emilio's good. It's actually very personal when mm-hmm. he describes it. Yeah. He wants it for Emilio's well-being. He's not thinking of Emilio as simply a tool, which I found very interesting. Correct, correct, absolutely. So, you know, here's that cause and effect thing again. If you're omniscient, or if you have access to omniscience, even if you are not in a position to judge whether the route from cause to effect is 
moral or accurate or worth it. If you have that omniscience, do you get a pass? I... <laughs> I... I... I'm not sure that the book makes the case that anyone has omniscience. No, of course it, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. But it's a it's one of those theological points. Yeah, that's 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 above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just find it I find it a fascinating thing and it's not something that I think she deals with obviously, in mm-hmm. the story. But it is very much there, especially when they are in transit and they have plenty of time to examine the state of their souls and their consciences. Yeah. Let me talk a little bit about that transit. So at the beginning, when um, when Amelia's first kidnapped, he's given this drug by uh, Carlo, which... Ah, uh, yes. Uh, Carlo is the Camorra lead of the mission, and uh, he's actually Emilio's fiance's ex-husband. Um, mm-hmm. He was a bit of a caricature. He he was, and actually, uh, let me bring up two things. So, first off, is that Emilio is initially given this drug called Quell, and it's a theoretical drug. You know, this is the future where um, it it basically strips him of emotion, and and this it, is pretty obviously Russell's uh, pen. Um, the thing she has to introduce to the narrative to keep Emilio for killing either everyone else on board or himself. <laughs> yeah. Well, it doesn't so much erase his emotions, it distances him from it. Because there's this point, remember, where they realize that his emotions are still building up. Right. Things yeah, are still building so, up. Just- so, but halfway through, they finally take him off it. And they basically mm-hmm. lock him in the airlock with Daniel Ironhorse, who's a Jesuit who, as you say, was elbow deep in everything, right? Mm-hmm. And everything that Emilio says to Danny is off screen. <laughs> yes. But I feel like I would have paid a lot of money <laughs> uh-huh. to have heard everything that Emilio unloaded on Ironhorse in that, uh, in that what, it was something like, 36 or 48 hours of him coming out yes. of that drug stu- you know, stupor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was partly necessary for, for his, his own, his own, his own reaching to redemption for right. having and, been and honestly his own sanity. Yes. And, and also for Iron Horse to come face to face with, you know, sorry, to, no, Iron Horse. Sorry, I meant it was, uh, it was necessary for Iron Horse to be with Emilio when he went through the I meant. Oh, oh yeah. And of course it was necessary for Emilio as well. And actually, yes. I, I did love the character of Iron Horse. I, I would have liked to see a little more of him. I thought the occasional chapters of him in dialogue with Sophia, mm-hmm. I thought were brilliantly done. They were, yes. I, I, was, I, I was very much moved by that. Can I say, just as an aside, that whatever difficulties you may have with the overall arc of the story, one of the things I really appreciate about reading both The Sparrow and Children of God is that the author has the talent for these beautiful scenes that are like stepping stones throughout the the book. Mm-hmm. So you get a sense of payoff when you hit these scenes. They really, they really kind of, you know, they they get you. You know, there's a there's a bit near the beginning that for me the first stepping stone that I really really remember is when they think Emilio is ready to go out into the world a bit. So they take him to this christening, 
and it's when he first meets the little girl, um, Christina, is it? Christina, 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 who is the daughter of the woman he's eventually going to um, be engaged to. And he has a bit of an episode because there's this situation where one of the children in the party gets a bit fretful. So an adult picks him up and carries him off for a nap and he's struggling. And Emilio has a flashback to when he was being raped. And of course, the Donata being bigger would hold him like an adult would hold a child and kind of be amused at his struggling. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's having an episode because of that. And, and um, so they, they, they kind of have him off somewhere to try and calm down. And, and this, this small girl comes along and she was like, you know, are you okay? And he's like, um, and he, he just said to her very, very simply and very honestly, you know, some, some bad people hurt me and sometimes I remember it. And she says, you know, well, uh, you know, she basically kind of just sympathizes with him, you know, hopes he better. So, and it was just a simple little exchange. And, and, and the, the point of it as well was that he, he was, he was so open with her. Whereas in the way, almost the entirety of the sparrow, they're kind of trying to drag the truth out of him. <laughs> I know, and this little girl just says, you know, how are you? And he's like, yeah, well, you know, it's like this. And she's like, oh, I could dare. <laughs> and that's, and that's the father general say, he's like, my God, Christina got more out of him in, in one sentence than I got out yes. of him in three months. <laughs> yes. And, and there was just, it's just that beautiful little moment. And there, there's so many of those beautiful little moments scattered oh, yeah. well, and, throughout and, the book that, that you just kind of, you kind of keep going because you're like, there's another beautiful moment coming. I can, I can hang on for that. Yeah, well, and also, I mean, I still love the characters. Mary Doria Russell does character better than, I think, any SF writer I've ever read. And I think mm-hmm. one of the only things that I were Well, one of the things I most regret about Children of God is that I didn't get to know Iron Horse and Sean Fain and even Carlo, and especially Gina, a little bit better. Um, and you know why? Because she treats her minor characters so well. She does. She nobody, does. Nobody is, well, I shouldn't say nobody. We thought Carlos was a little two-dimensional. Carlos is two-dimensional, um, and, that's, and that's, okay, so there are two more things that, well, three, but we're running out of time, so I'll just do two. Um, two more things that bug me a little bit. Gina, I loved as a character. That's Emilio's fiance who helped him so much with the healing process. Mm-hmm. And she was beautifully fleshed out. And then the day that Amelia gets kidnapped, you get like two more sentences about her and you don't get to hear from her again. Okay. And losing yeah. her POV just made me sad. Oh. Because yeah, I really yeah. liked her and I thought she'd, she'd done such a good job understanding the scars that Amelia had both physically and psychologically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and also managing her own, you know, rather willful and, and you know, uh, hyper daughter, like so many yes. kids are at that age. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, um, and with Carlo, I actually, and I think this is probably another, one of the reasons why I was annoyed with the narrative is probably because halfway through, I had decided that it was going in one direction and it didn't go there. And that's oh. my, that's on me. That's, that's my mm-hmm. bad. But with okay. Carlo, I especially, and the motivations of the people on the asteroid and the kidnapping of Emilio, you know, the first story, The Sparrow, had really been about how people come in with good intentions and things go wrong anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I thought she was setting Children of God up to be a scenario where, a, a counterpoint where people go in with bad intentions. Mm-hmm. And the way she shuffled Carlo off the ending so quickly by having him have a, an allergic reaction to something <laughs> on the planet. 
Uh-huh. It just really undermined my reading of the book up to that point. So that that well, when you when you say shuffled off, um, he didn't die. He didn't die. That's not no, what no. She's yeah, in, he like, just had to go back to the the thing, and he didn't he was, directly affect events. And then Iron Horse just completely. I mean, he became a comic figure. He did, but in a way, I appreciated that somewhat because one of one of the challenges with a book like that where you do almost you know get attached to every minor character is that at a certain stage unless you want to be writing pardon me for saying this the wheel of time you're <laughs> going to have to let some of those side storylines drop you're going to have to just you know tie them off with a quick bow and push them aside and forge ahead with the main thing and and the huge challenge i mean what we had how many pages was it it was about it was going on 400, 500 pages? I assume so. I, I've, actually, I had both books in ebook, so I'm not, really not sure. Okay. But, but it, wasn't, it was not a small book. And you had a situation where Emilio was living about good grief. How, how long was the trip again? For, for uh, years? Eight, so, eight months-ish. Okay. So, so basically for him, it's almost like two years passes or so. Uh-huh. But... While that's happening with him, you have to unravel decades worth of history happening on the planet. Right, right. And that's hard. And it's not. And it's not just like you know, um, we're we're going to we're, not, we're going to skip bits and so on. They had it quite involved. Like I said, Sophia's presence there made sense to me in that regard because she was that human presence mm-hmm. that was there as events unfolded and and was part of it. And the the challenge there really was to have that huge swiftness of motion of history um, in one space while they're on the ship basically twiddling their thumbs and examining their consciences. <laughs> it's, 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 it's very difficult. And I could appreciate that when you're dealing with that, when you're dealing with, with, with so many small characters, but trying to unfold on the one hand a historical epic in half of your book, you're going to have to, to, to let certain characters go when although, you realize you're pushing the plot forward. Although here's a thing that I just realized. Karen, mm-hmm. are there any Runa point of view characters in either book? Because Hanala is a Janata. You get Sophia's point of view. You get, of course, the humans. You get... Mm-hmm. Um, the two predator, the two Janata, um, you know, the, and I'm f- sorry, I'm so bad with their names, but the one who had been their point of contact in the Sparrow and then the one who raped Emilio, mm-hmm. you get both those point of views. You get yes. some female Janata point of views, which are really cool. Yes. You get yes. the guy who married Hanala, but he's Janata. Yeah. Yes. Do we get any Runa point of views? The closest. Mm. I mean, we learned a lot about Aksama in the Sparrow, but we didn't get. The I was point going to say, view. I was going to say the closest I can think of is is in terms of a character that stood out, but it wasn't even quite really from her point of view, was it? No, it was always the humans interacting with her. But I could see the reason for that, and it's something that they do kind of make clear in the book. There's a point where the the well. There's a point where Sophia kind of admits to herself that the the Runa are not particularly intellectual. Yeah. And 
she she's she's that she knows they're very kind and she knows that they're they're very supportive and she feels even a little guilty as she thinks it but she just finds that they, they they have this level of chatter that's that's just completely frivolous and it sometimes tires her out and as i said it completely tires out at the point where he just goes someplace for quiet but then they discover a little later down the line that the the so-called lower intelligence was partly linked to the constant state of lower nutrition malnutrition, of, of right. malnutrition that the Janata kept their well kept their cows in, kept their meat source in. Mm-hmm. So the same way, so the same way that they regulated their birth rate by regulate by restricting their food access, mm-hmm. they were also restricting their 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 intellectual growth, their their mental their physical mental growth as well. So. In a way, I could see that there would have, it would have been hard to have had a compelling point of view character from the Runal earlier on. There are two, two that I think I could have used to see their viewpoint. And one would be, there was a female Runal from the original village from the Sparrow the who ended who up being... Close. Yeah, she ended up being kind of the war leader for the rebellion. Yes, yes. I would have... Mm-hmm. It could I could have used to see her point of view, and the other would have been a Runa of some nature who was born after the gardens. Yes, yes, that that could have worked. That but there again, helped. you're talking about you're talking about more characters. <laughs> I know. Now I'm talking about more characters, but you know, again, it mm-hmm. could have helped sell the ending for me a little bit. Mm-hmm. And and this is exactly the sort of thing as a reviewer that I'm not supposed to do. I'm not supposed to say, "Oh, you should have written the book this way." And I don't want to <laughs> say that, but but it did in in reflecting on the book like this, it it does feel like a bit of a gap, doesn't it? Reflecting on it, it does, and yet, well, the thing is, the thing is, either you're going to insist that there be two books to be able to tease out all the things that we're talking about, or we accept the. I don't even want to call the limitations. We accept the focus of this book. And the focus of this book does, to me, really still very much like Emilio. It does. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, giving the history of what unfolds while he's away is important and it's essential. But if it could have been done with POV POV characters um, who were not Runal, then it doesn't take away from the focus. Well, but so, the Runa are the main beneficiaries of what happened, aren't they? Well, that's debatable, isn't it? Is it? Because, well, th- this is this is the funny thing. Because when Isaac, you know, presents his 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 musical discovery to Emilio, the the little flip, the little switch that flipped in my brain went from, oh, maybe it was nothing to do with them at all. Maybe the whole. Um, as you say, the, the benefit that they derived from this was, was purely coincidental, purely accidental. See, it was because of the conversation that you and I had about the sparrow that I read The Children of God the way I did, where I really... I'm sorry. Saw you looking the for the and I was willing to let that go, you see. I didn't go in with that expectation. I, I, was, I was purely speculating when I said to you, and I'm sorry I sent you down that road. <laughs> I am sorry. I am no, see, sorry. I, because... It made perfect well, sense way, to me. Well, I could see it made sense, but because it made sense and because we were expecting it, I respect her for flipping that on me. 
I, yeah, I guess I just didn't follow her down that road. I was like, you know, no, no, I, you know, I can see it. I can see it. And then I'm like, Hey, wait, that didn't, that's the thing. I think, <laughs> I think I never, in a way I didn't find the right way to read the book. And, and, you know, with every reviewer, there's the question, is that the author's fault or is it mine? Um, I do definitely, as always, rec- recognize and respect uh, Russell's strengths in characterization, the culture of the Janata. Um, I, I'd still love her pacing and, and just basic narrative things like that. I mean, you know, she, she's still a brilliant writer. But yeah, I think I just came to that book with a bunch of wrong expectations <laughs> both, both, both. I have to apologize to you <laughs> well and both before picking it up and ones I developed halfway through to try and make it make sense and I, I guess I just never found the right, the right key um, mm-hmm. to, to reading it well to be honest I find it a challenging story Okay, now, I find it a challenging story to tell and the fact that she's done so well is what impresses me so in, in the end, you know, I came, I started this conversation saying, in the end, my feelings about this book were kind of negative. Mm-hmm. In the end, are your feelings on balance more positive or more negative? They are more positive. Okay. And part of it is because she doesn't give us any easy answers. And that's the way it should be. No, and because that, that as emotionally unsatisfying as it is, it, it is, I appreciate it intellectually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and you get the emotional satisfaction in other areas, which is as it should be. True. So, true. so, so what if, so what if Emilio is at the center of the universe? So what if humans are at the center of the universe? So what if even the Runao are at the center of the universe? So, so what if it's music and DNA that are the center of the universe? That, that, uh, that is, that, that is the, the thing that was so important that it had to come about. The point is that when you see his interactions with, with Christina or when you see, um, you know, um, Daniel and, and Sophia talking, when you get those moments, those stepping stones, as I said, that's where I find my satisfaction. Yeah, and I guess I really was, you know, after, especially after The Sparrow, um, I was just really looking for something more, more universal, I guess. You because were looking for... Or the big triumphal SF trope. Oh, I think I was. I think I was. <laughs> and the funny thing is, you know, it's hardly like you can say that the end of the sparrow is triumphal. It's not no. in any way. It's very ambiguous. And that to me was brilliant. But at the end of Children of God, which in which is also ambiguous and also not triumphal, I was just like, kid. Hey, <laughs> but then you see. But you see, she, she did give us, she gave us two things. She gave us two things. I did find a level of satisfaction in Isaac's discovery. I did. But the little bit at the very end where he gets to meet his daughter. Now, really truly, that, that was her gift to you, wasn't it? Yeah, in a way, it really was. It really was. It was, it was sort of a, you know, look, I'm not going to torture him all the way to the end. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, there, and, there's and still so many beautiful moments, and like I say, um, getting the perspective of Sophia, and also the female, the female Jonathan, mm-hmm. the one that yes. was the wife of the ambassador. Ah, uh, yes, oh yes, man, yes, I yes. love that character. She was awesome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um, yeah. no, there were so many perspectives that that I really valued, um, and and when I had complained a little bit in at 
in the Sparrow that we didn't get as much about the culture of the aliens as I would have liked. And and Mary actually That's herself, this she came on my blog and said, "By the way, I I you know appreciate what you wrote, and I really try and get more into that in the sequel." And and I will give her full props; she did. Yes, yes, and and that is a very hard thing to do. Absolutely, it's a very hard thing to do. And and I appreciate as well that she gave us degrees of alienness. We were talking about how we didn't have a, a point of view character from the Runal, but we made it clear from the time of the Sparrow that when the humans came, they did find more of themselves in the Janata than they did in the Runal. Yes, yes. And that's always the challenge. Anytime you write uh, a story that is going to have aliens in it, because yes, they need to be recognizably alien, but there needs to be some sort of human common ground somewhere or else, narratively, you are not going to be able to hook in your reader. Correct, correct. I'm thinking of Asimov's The Gods Themselves. Mm-hmm. You've read that? You know, oh, the, yeah, the, I've read the middle bit? Best bit, the middle bit where he's, he's dealing with these aliens. And, you know, what does he do? He describes them in a family, in a triad. Mm-hmm. And the, it's such a, a nice sort of homely kind of human thing where you have, you know, one person who's a scientist and the other two who are like, you know, co-spouse parents or what have you. But one of them is also interested in the science. And it was such a nice little home environment that that was the human, the human foundation that you wanted. In that some ways, that, that, that middle bit with the aliens felt more humane than the two human precisely. bits on either <laughs> side. <laughs> It did, it did, which I find absolutely stunning. I just, I, I don't know, I want these days, I want to write an essay on that book or something. That book is such and, an aberration for Asimov, but yeah, yeah, I know, I so, totally see what you're going for there. So, so yeah, that's always a challenge when you're dealing with aliens, and um, I will not, I, I, I appreciate her decision to keep it with the Janata, to keep it the Janata as the ones who had the most in common with humans, especially the bad, the worst bits of, of human behavior. Right, right. Yeah, no, I yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot to admire about this book, and and maybe my expectations from the Sparrow were just set too high. I'm trying to think what kind of expectations I had. I I think. Possibly one reason why my expectations were, were different or, or perhaps non-existent is because I, from the beginning I told you that The Sparrow is a very theological book. Absolutely. And because I am aware of certain arguments in, in theology, that was what I was expecting to see in this book. And that way I wasn't disappointed because mm. I did see it there. Right down to the ambiguity because these are questions that theologians are still discussing. Oh, of course, of course. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yes. Okay. We've so, <laughs> whew, we have managed to fill a, a, another excellent hour talking about Mary Dory Russell. And <laughs> yes. And, and as much as I ne- didn't necessarily find the book entirely satisfying, I'm definitely glad I read it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we think you should read it too. And you must have read it by now if you've gone through all of this. Yes, we hope so. We hope so. <laughs> And um, by the way, at the end of the ebook version, at least the ebook version that I got on iBooks, there's a study guide that also concludes yes. with an interview with uh, Mary Dory Russell that I thought was excellent. Now, believe it or not, 
I decided not to read the study guide. Okay. I thought I would get after the podcast because I didn't want to. I didn't want the study guide to form my thoughts too much. No problem. I I read the interview um, because I was just so fascinated to hear what she had to say about the book, and and I'm confident enough now that that I figured that wouldn't uh, shape things too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes. Yeah, so okay. So we are we are back in our groove. We are. This is the beginning. No wait. Of hang on. You want to tell me about the interview? I thought you were going to tell me something about it. No, I was just uh, kind of advertising the ebook version. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean it's it's good stuff. Um, you know, she she obviously did the interview a little bit after the book had come out, so she had gotten a chance to to get some of the critical response. But she didn't really address my personal concerns with the book. No, no surprise there. <laughs> um, but yeah, so let's see. So this is the beginning of season two of our of our podcast. I hope uh, people enjoyed season one. I, I suspect we'll find out just how much people enjoyed season one when Hugo, Hugo Ballot comes out. Right, everyone? Oh, hush. <laughs> <laughs> She's only doing this because she wants to see her man in a kilt. Yes, my, well, my husband has said that if, that if I were to get a, a Hugo nomination in any category in any year, but it could be this year, everyone, and it's in San Antonio <laughs> and I'm in Houston, so I'm going to be at this con no matter what. Um, that he will wear a tuxedo kilt. Mm-hmm. And if any of you have ever met my husband, Curtis Potterveld, um, you'll see that it was it would be worth it to see him. <laughs> I'm just saying. Because he has, he has the legs for it. He has the legs. Mm-hmm. So, um, but next, so in two weeks, most likely, we will be back and we will be talking about the um, the debut collection, Jagannath, by Karen Tidbeck. Uh, this Which has been getting um, quite a lot of attention. Quite a lot of attention. Uh, the Vandermeers have been particularly enthusiastic about promoting it, and uh, so we look forward to talking about that next week, or in two weeks, I should say. Yes. Okay, well, with that, I think we'll sign off, and we'll see everyone in two weeks. Okay, till later.